Welcome to California Now, a new podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. Join me and we'll explore some of the people, places, and experiences that make California one of the world's great travel destinations. Today, we'll spend time with one of the founders of Atlas Obscura. We sort of see our deeper philosophical mission as bringing wonder into people's lives, sort of reminding people that the world is is still actually vast and, and strange and really an amazing place. That's Dylan Thuris, and he'll share a few of his California favorites with us. For all of you enophiles out there, today we have a treat. John Bonet, the James Beard Award-winning author and former wine critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us to talk about the new rules of wine. Probably, to me, the most important rule is rule number one, which is drink the rainbow. You know, wine is not white or red anymore. It, it, it's rosé, it's orange wine, it comes in a thousand shades, and the old boxes that we're still told to put wine into don't really apply anymore. Plus, we'll take on one of the great challenges of any vacation, packing your own suitcase. A true legend of the travel business will give us her quick tips on packing. It's all coming up on California Now. Welcome to California Now. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. My guest, Dylan Thuras, is a co-founder of the website Atlas Obscura and co-author of the recent book of the same name. Maybe you've run across Atlas Obscura on social media, pointing you towards some remarkably strange attraction in a country far away or the very place where you live. It may be an oddball museum you never knew was there, even in your own hometown. It's a tricky mission to describe, but Atlas Obscura has found a home on the internet and on the bookshelf. Dylan, welcome to California Now. Uh, Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Sure. So um, describe the mission and the origin of Atlas Obscura. The easiest way to describe it is sometimes we call ourselves a a guide to the world's hidden wonders, collection of unusual and incredible places all over the world. But the truth is we do a lot more than just that now. We write a lot of our own original articles. We run international trips. So we sort of see our our deeper philosophical mission as being uh, bringing wonder into people's lives, sort of reacquainting them with the wonder of the world around them. And that includes, right, whether it's their own hometown or, you know, some far-flung distant place, sort of reminding people that the world is, is still actually vast and, and strange and really an amazing place. And and how does that mission uh, intersect with the state of California? I'm sure there are lots of interesting places that you have found uh, in the nooks and crannies of the state. Yeah, I, we I, I did a I took a look the other day and we have a, about uh, 30 or 13,500 some places uh, on the site that's always growing. Uh, people can submit locations and then we have an editorial team who looks them over. Uh, but California alone has close to a thousand places, which is like a really disproportionate <laughs> uh, number when you think about the fact that we're covering the entire world. I mean, would you say that California takes the crown for, you know, oddest state, say from, you know, compared to say Florida or something like that? Uh, it's such a tough, it's such a, it's like <laughs> you, you can't, you know, it's like children, you can't pick a favorite. It's wrong. <laughs> uh, it's certainly, it's certainly up there. I would definitely say it. it is a strong contender for a uh, weirdest state in the union. <laughs> Are you Strangest finding... state in the union. Most wondrous state in the union. There yeah, you go. There's, there's a nice spin on it. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, so give me some examples of your, of your favorite California destination. I, I know there's like a thousand of them, but what are some other... Can some I other ask you a that... question? Sure. Uh, you're a recent New York, like East Coast to West Coast transplant. You, you were, you know, New York, New Jersey based for yeah. a long time. Absolutely. How, how, how's the cultural shift going? How's it feel being out there on the West Coast? You know, it's different. It's a, it's a different culture, kind of. It's a different kind of lifestyle, different pace of life, which is very nice. Uh, I do feel I bring my, like, 
East Coast like small dog. Like I, some, I feel like I'm like running in circles, like yapping, while like other people are like very relaxedly like eating fruit and like discussing. <laughs> I don't know how the, to get there on the freeway or whatever. But right. like I, there's a, there's a there's a clear cultural difference, but it's actually it's like sort of as a New Yorker, it's like relaxing. That's true. Um, it's uh, true. You do. I mean, it, I think it, it depends where you are. I, I guess, but I you know you definitely do. Mm-hmm. I feel like you do have to kind of like. You know, shift down in gear a little bit. It's definitely a more relaxed uh, way of life, I think. And um, you know, the food's amazing. Yeah. The the produce and the fruits and vegetables you get. I mean, there's a handful of places in the atlas that sort of touch on this that I, I, I really love, which is that California is strewn with these. Uh, they're called mother trees. Sometimes mm-hmm. we've got like the navel orange tree. The original, the mother navel orange tree was in California. But there, there's another one. Uh, the sweet Mediterranean orange is uh, a, a type of a type of citrus variety, and the tree, the original mother tree, is still alive. You can go visit it. It's this hundred and sixty-one year old citrus tree, and it was like it became famous. People would travel from all over uh, to go and and not just try the fruit, but then also take a cutting. And so that they could grow this variety of, of orange themselves. So if somebody wanted to, you know, experience that, is there is there such a thing as like tree tourism? Is there is there a way people can kind of uh, get a sense of the magnitude of the agricultural kind of, you know, industry in, in California? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so you can – I mean you you could go – there's a bunch of different orchards that are growing all kinds of like heritage uh, fruits, heritage stone fruits. But there's one place that's like maybe the – I would say the holy – one of the holy grails for uh, fruit tourists or, or tree tourists, uh, which is called the, the Arc of Citrus Variety. This is run by like the U.S. Department of Agriculture and it is basically the – it's a ground zero – for all things citrus. And what that means is not just that they have labs and this kind of stuff, but they have acres and acres and acres growing every single type of citrus that you have ever seen and, and hundreds that you have never seen or heard of. So, so where, where exactly is, is that citrus collection? It's, uh, it's just outside of L.A. in Riverside, part of the university over there. So, Dylan, you know, so many attractions uh, are, you know, involve a road trip. Maybe there's something, you know, 40 or 50 miles outside of a city. Are there some that might be right inside, uh, you know, an urban area, maybe where you can kind of hit two or three in in a day that are just kind of near each other? Uh, yeah. So I would – there are a ton. And actually, you know, the, the density in an urban area is, is generally much, much greater. And so, like, uh, I was just out in Los Angeles visiting a handful of places that I, I hadn't gotten a chance to visit there yet. And the number of incredible – small collections, small museums in LA is totally unbelievable. And there's one place in particular that I feel like 99%, more than that, 99.99% of Angelinos are also unfamiliar with. And it's a place called the Holy Land Exhibition. And so what this is, is it's a house museum. It's in a little white stucco house uh, near the freeway that could literally describe all of Los Angeles, (laughs) but it's a little white stucco house. And it is run by a woman who is in her late 80s, and she was the assistant to an archaeologist who uh, supposedly Indiana Jones is based on. And he went around all over uh, the Middle East and collected 
uh, artifacts relating to religious scriptures, but you know both the the Bible, uh, the Torah, the Quran, and collecting them uh, over the course of his entire life. And basically, his collection is uh, been completely preserved, including like huge maps, a, a room that's just like a giant set of maps from the 1930s, uh, a little like tea, Middle Eastern like tea uh, area, and then just like. Uh, an enormous set of these unbelievable uh, artifacts. And it's it's the experience of visiting the place, learning about its history, meeting the people who run it. It's a total joy. And it's one of dozens and dozens. I mean, obviously, there's the Watts Towers. There are all kinds of things uh, in, in Los Angeles and, and obviously in any, any of the cities in California. They're all really chock full of these kinds of places. That's amazing. That's great. Where 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 are you living right now? So right now I'm I'm uh, kind of outside, right outside of Sacramento. Okay, there's a bunch of. I mean, this is the this is the best thing about this is like wherever wherever you are, there's like something great to see. So this is <laughs> this is one that I think probably is, is pretty famous in Sacramento, and maybe you've already been here. Um, but have you ever have you been to the uh, original street level in Sacramento? I have not yet. No, it's which is now underground, but the original street level, I've not been to it, but I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, tell me more. I, I'd like to know more about that. So it's, you know, there are a number of towns that have this, but basically, you know, when they built the town uh, 100 plus years ago, it was at a totally different uh, level. You know, the ground was literally 10 feet lower. And so they built all this stuff. And then over time, uh, stuff gets built on top. And there was a problem with flooding. So a bunch of these buildings were just abandoned, essentially. They left their ground floors and then would build these uh, raised sidewalks above them. And what this meant over sort of, you know, building on this over years and years and years is that you just – you're actually always standing on the second floor of Sacramento. Like all of Sacramento <laughs> is the second floor of a house where they've basically like no one goes in the first floor anymore. Right. Just climb out the window I guess. And, and, and so it's like uh, – you know, I mean I think that's a fairly well-known Sacramento place. But it's it, it does have a kind of delight and gives you a little bit of a sense of the, what the place once once was. Uh, and there's another, there's another nice place in uh, Sacramento called Safetyville, USA, which is a very – cute name. And <laughs> basically, um, it's a tiny miniature replica of Sacramento hmm. where kids can come in and they get to basically do projects that have to do with uh, urban development, you know, municipal planning, uh, and also learn all about like safety stuff, how you set up street crossings and, and all of this. So it's like a tiny municipal planning zone for children to, <laughs> to do their their city engineering, which is really cute and great. And that, That's seems, funny. that seems really nice as well. Dylan Thuris is the co-founder of Atlas Obscura and co-author of the book by that name. Thanks so much for joining us, Dylan. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, uh, and enjoy your beautiful weather. Um, <laughs> it's rainy and 50 degrees here right now. So, you know, you, you, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we have, uh, enjoy the West coast. I think we have, uh, about 70 degrees and not a cloud in the sky right now. So, <laughs> No, you monsters. You guys are monsters. <laughs> As always, you'll find links to all the places that we've discussed at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Coming up, we'll meet John Bonet, author of two great books that focus on the ever-changing world of wine. But first, quick tips on packing from a true expert. listening to the California Now podcast. There's an old saying that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, 
A vacation, whether across the globe or across the state, begins for me when I pack my bags. And often I do that in a chaotic rush before racing to the airport. Well, my next guest is uniquely qualified to provide us with some quick tips on packing. Pauline Fromer is a travel legend. Back in the 1950s, her father, Arthur Fromer, wrote the revolutionary travel guide Europe on $5 a day, and she's now co-president of Fromer Media. She says she spends about one week per month traveling, and not surprisingly, she knows a thing or two about packing bags. Because I don't want to be a slave to my bags, because I don't want to be burdened with too much stuff dragged through the airport, and because I never ever, ever check a bag on an airline if I can help it. I only own a carry-on bag. That keeps me from overpacking. You just don't need to bring all that stuff with you. You can wear the same thing day after day. The paparazzi isn't following you. Nobody's going to complain that they saw you in something two days in a row. So how do I get everything in? I roll it. This is especially helpful if you're going to a place like California where it could be very chilly uh, in San Francisco but really warm right outside uh, in Marin County. Uh, so you want to have things that won't wrinkle. You can easily roll them up and they become so much smaller as well, you want to mix and match. You wear dark colors that hide stains, and you layer so that you're never too hot, you're never too cold, and you assume that you probably won't be going to a ball or to a very fancy event, unless you are, and then you pack for that. But a lot of us put in things that we really love into our suitcases, but don't really think of the context. You, you should just assume it's going to be casual, because most of life is nowadays. For me, airline security comes down to what I need to have with me on the plane. And I've been surprised in recent years. I once tried to bring chili on the plane, a, a nice vat of homemade chili for my lunch, and it was considered a liquid. Uh, so you have to try and think like a security agent so that going through security is seamless. I guess the essential item that I always pack with me is a good book. Uh, often I'll have it on my phone nowadays, but, uh, you know, delays happen. And to me, the thing that's going to keep me comfortable is if I can distract myself. So I always make sure to have something that I'm excited about reading with me. Pauline Fromer is co-president of Fromer's and hosts a radio show with her father, Arthur Fromer, the creator of the legendary Europe on $5 a day. She'll be back soon to talk to us about traveling with children. She knows the subject well, having been on the road since she was an infant. She now travels with her own family, her husband and two kids. Coming up in Vino Veritas, in wine, there's truth. But the truth of the matter is, the wine world is constantly in flux. We'll explore how it's evolving. As always, you'll find links to all the places we've discussed on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. My next guest and I have crossed paths a lot in our lives. We went to the same university, held the same job, and even moved back and forth between the East and West Coasts. We just did it at different times, so I'm glad we can finally sit down at the same time and chat with one another. For nearly a decade, John Bonet served as the wine editor and chief wine critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, where he won two James Beard Awards and numerous other accolades. These days, he's the senior contributing editor at Punch, an online magazine about wine, beer, and spirits, and the author of The New Wine Rules, and he's also the wine consultant for JetBlue Airways. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks. So uh, 
I have a copy of your latest book, The New Wine Rules. I, I really love it. I need this book. I think a lot of us do. Um, I do love a glass of wine from time to time, but the whole wine world can be so mysterious and intimidating. What prompted you to write this book? A few things. One, uh, there was this this lack of good basic wine books, and when I looked around, and uh, you know, when you're when you're writing about wine, you think about uh, how do you how do you sort of direct people to something just to get them started. Everything seemed like it was sort of 20, 25 years out of date, and it, it represented a wine world that was that just had changed. And then I, my wife and I were actually in San Francisco having lunch, and we were listening, kind of eavesdropping on this table next to us, uh, women who were late 20s, early 30s, uh, obviously professional, obviously doing really well. And they, they wanted to order a bottle of wine. They were struggling with the wine list. The servers weren't really helping. And we just it was it was hard to listen to, and we, we were like, "Do we step in? What do we do?" And so <laughs> this began this discussion, saying, "Could we could we write? You know, could I could I put together a wine book that would actually feel like it was 2018?" And and that's how that's how it came together. Well, wine can be so mysterious and intimidating because you know there are so many of them. They come from so many places. There, uh, it's just it can be mind boggling. So as somebody who's not an expert, you know, it can be pretty overwhelming. So what are some of your new rules? What are some of the things that people should be aware of as they are trying to experience and have a, have a good experience with wine? Well, wine can be confusing, but I also like to remind folks that this is this is the era of Google and you know, we have we have the world at our fingertips and so things that in theory are confusing uh, don't necessarily have to be when you're just dealing with the particulars of what's this grape what's this region so with the book I actually wanted to to, to, to come up with rules that essentially you couldn't Google uh, which is to say if I could map out the parts of my brain that are not easily replicable on the internet uh, in terms of wine what what would they be and so uh, Probably to me, the most important rule and, and one that I think sets the template is rule number one, which is why it's rule number one, which <laughs> is drink the rainbow, which I borrowed from from the health world where you're told to eat the rainbow. Uh, and, and the idea of drink the rainbow is that, you know, wine is not white or red anymore. It, it, it's rosé. It's orange wine. It comes in a thousand shades and all sorts of different iterations. And the old boxes that, that I think we're still told to put wine into don't don't really apply anymore. And so I think this idea that that there's this huge world of stuff to understand and it's a little bit scary and a little bit uh, fearsome, uh, it can be, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And and I think people, I think the big step is for people to to get past that idea that it's something to fear, and to just kind of dive in and and be curious and and realize that you know there's there's never going to be easy answers, so you just kind of have to enjoy the ride. Well, you know, thanks to you, I'm looking at taking my wine rack out of the kitchen, making sure to keep it away from any source of heat. That's one of your rules too, right? It is indeed. If, if, I, can, if I can get people to do two things aside from not worrying so much about wine, one is to throw away those awful winged corkscrews, the, you know, the ones I'm talking about with little arms, Oh yeah, uh, which don't work. The physics of them is completely illogical and they're <laughs> awful. Uh, and the better alternative, which is the waiter's friend corkscrew is cheaper. Uh, and just the physics of it, it's a double lever. So it literally just pulls the cork out much easier. And yeah, number two is get rid of your, your kitchen wine rack because almost certainly, unless somehow your kitchen is magic. 55 degrees all the time, mm. you are slowly cooking your wine. Oh. Well, you know, ordering wine in a restaurant can be so daunting. There's so much pressure and I often feel like I'm being judged. So how, how can I get around that? How can I kind of 
order at a restaurant and feel like, uh, you know, I'm not in a, a dunce at it. I, I think the big thing is, you know, you're, this is literally a business transaction. And I think sometimes we forget that and we get tripped up in, in, in the, the social graces of it. But it's a business transaction. You're there to buy something. They're there to sell it to you. And you need to find, quite literally, the competent and intelligent salesperson who can help you make the right decision. Uh, and so the rule itself is that ordering wine is a conversation and not a test. Uh, and I think that's that. Th- there's lots more sort of layers to that, but but that's what it boils down to: is that you know, give them a sense of what you like. Don't feel that you have to use wine words because it's not it's not your job to use wine words. It's probably not even their job to use wine words. But describe the things you like. Describe more or less how much you want to pay. If if you are worried about talking money, you can kind of point to the the price range you're interested in. And if they you know if they've been a server for more than a week, they'll hopefully get it. And you know if they can't answer the question, really nicely ask them if there's someone who knows a little more about the wine list. I think we we get tied up in this idea that we have to provide answers. And like if you walk into any other store, that's not going to be your job. And so why should it suddenly become your responsibility when you sit down at a restaurant table? All right. Let's talk about your first book, The New California Wine. Uh, In it, you profile a number of California winemakers who are forging their own path. What's the common thread connecting these people? I think the common thread with the new California wine, and it was complicated when it came out because a lot of people thought it was just going to be the young guys. Uh, And in fact, they're there are a fair number of pretty classic wineries uh, in the book, is that they all had a pretty unified vision of what what made the world fall in love with California wine in the first place. And I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s. And there was a style of wine where, you know, it was sunnier and riper than European wine for the most part. Uh, but it was still, it was fresh. It was, it was easily drinkable. It belonged on the table. The wines were interesting. They were nuanced. Uh, they weren't what I, what I call in the book big flavor, uh, which is the era that started kind of late 80s, early 90s and went for about 15 years where the wines became a little a little too much of everything. Uh, and so I think what tied everyone together was this idea that whether it was classic wines, Cabernet, Chardonnay, or whether it was something completely new like Trousseau or Gamay, that the wines had to have a, a global reference point. They had to be comprehensible by people who might not have been paying as close attention to California as I was, but who saw that the quality and the complexity of these wines was on par with the best wines anywhere else in the world. So, you know, this is a travel podcast, and since I'm new in town, uh, I'm still filling up my California bucket list. Where can I go to experience some of, of what you wrote about in this book? So you can experience it all over. I uh, I like to send folks uh, obviously up to um, up to Sonoma, uh, often to uh, Healdsburg, uh, and and if you can to go a little farther, uh, even to take a day trip up to Anderson Valley and Western Mendocino, which to me is really one of the old, one of the last old little corners of of like old classic California. It feels like development and and the world hasn't come knocking at its door. The Pinot Noir is extraordinary, uh, but you can. 
you could even do it uh, in the Bay Area. There's a handful of urban wineries like Brock Cellars, which is literally in uh, in the warehouse district in Berkeley. Uh, and you could head down to uh, the Central Coast. I uh, I think anyone who really loves California wine should, if they're uh, if they're around on a weekend, go down uh, to Cupertino, which is yes, Apple headquarters, <laughs> uh, and go about 2,600 feet up the mountain, uh, and you'll find Ridge Montebello, which for me is still the absolute defining wine of California. What makes Ridge Montebello so special? Some of it is the history. Uh, it is a winery that was really first established in the 1880s uh, and uh, has kind of this largely unbroken history of now probably 130-ish years uh, of making some of the best Cabernet on the planet. Some of it is that the Santa Cruz Mountains really do have this remarkable, unique terroir uh, in, at Montebello. It's limestone-based, uh, which is somewhat classic to a number of great wine regions including Bordeaux and Burgundy, but there's much more complexity. They're young soils because obviously it's California. It's vol- you know, it's all seabed uplift and volcanoes, uh, and it's just this sweet spot of of ripeness and freshness and this extraordinary terroir that, like I said, has been has been producing conclusively extraordinary wine for over a century. And by terroir, you mean kind of like the taste of what the earth and the atmosphere and the environment that all comes together in that grape and the wine. Exactly. And and I think, you know, p- people who spend a lot of time drinking Cabernet do find that the Cabernets from the Santa Cruz Mountains and Montebello in particular taste unlike anything from anywhere else. Well, you've certainly given me a few more places to add to my to-do list, John. Thanks so much. You are a lifesaver. It's been really great uh, catching up with you. And I think we should go wine tasting the next time you're in town. Absolutely. I'll give you a shout. John Bonet is the James Beard Award-winning senior contributing editor of Punch and the author of The New Wine Rules, a genuinely helpful guide to everything you need to know, available at Amazon.com and your local bookstore. You can find links to John's books as well as all of the wineries uh, we discussed during this podcast at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And if our interview with John Bonet has sparked your interest in a trip to wine country, check out the Visit California blog, visitcalifornia.com slash now. You'll find dozens of wine-related articles there with insider tips on what to see and do in Napa, Sonoma, Santa Barbara County, and beyond. <laughs>